Today on Blue 58, we're flipping over to defense for our next position preview for a look at edge rushers. Zadarius Smith is gone, but Rashawn Gary and Preston Smith are a pretty solid one-two punch. But who can we count on beyond that? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. Edge rushers are interesting on the Packers roster. As a position group, it's kind of unique. The top end, pretty darn good. Everything else ranges from not so good to complete unknowns. As I said in the intro, Rashawn Gary and Preston Smith represent a very, very solid one-two punch for the Packers. Down the depth chart from there, there are a lot of either complete unknowns or guys who haven't performed all that well. I don't really know if there's any other position on the Packers roster right now that has such a big disparity between the front line and the guys immediately after. If, depending on how you count, cornerback might be there as well. You've got Jair Alexander, Eric Stokes, and Rasul Douglas as your one, two, three guys, since they play, you know, three corners most of the time anyway. Beyond that, a lot of unknowns, a lot of poor performances, let's put it that way. But I don't think it's quite the same kind of drop-off as edge rusher because you've got at least three good guys there. Looking at the Packers roster, I think if I could add one free agent anywhere, it would be here. We mentioned a few guys a couple episodes back. I'll throw one more on that list. Chris Odom, the now reigning USFL Defensive Player of the Year. I wrote about him this week for Acme Packing Company. You may recognize that name as having been a member of the 2017 Packers. If you don't, don't worry about it. He only played about 50 snaps for the Packers that year. Didn't really do anything with him. Had like six tackles, no sacks. If you missed the Chris Odom era in Green Bay, it's okay. Since then, he's been in and out of different levels of professional football. He's played in the Alliance of American Football. If you don't know what that is, also fine. It's a pro league that has since come and gone already. Spent some time with Washington in the NFL. Went up to Calgary, played with the Stampeders for a little bit. Now is... Uh, with the uh, Houston Gamblers in the USFL, but I think he could be a solid addition to the Packers roster because they need somebody in that third or fourth edge rusher range. That's not to say there aren't options there. I'm just not really sold on the options that the Packers have. But let's talk through some of those options. As we did the last time around, we're sorting everybody into one of four categories. Players who have high, moderate, or low expectations heading into this year, and also guys that have no expectations at all. We're also going to um, talk about how guys can meet those expectations, as well as making some predictions for every player on the roster. Let's work our way from the bottom to the top. And Ladarius Hamilton is the first guy who gets our attention here. He's been a pretty low-end guy to this point. He kicked around in Dallas and Tampa before landing in Green Bay. He was active for six games in 2021. Managed 64 snaps on defense, didn't do a whole lot with them. He's in my no expectations category. He's not really a tremendous prospect. At best, he's probably your fifth or sixth edge rusher and a special teamer. Making the team would be the goal for him this year. Does he make the team? Does he not? We'll see. Maybe he kicks around on the practice squad a little bit. My prediction for him is that he will not make the 53-man roster going way out on a limb there. But uh, he did spend some time there last year. I just don't think he's got it this year. Continuing, Kobe Jones is also in that no expectations category. He was an undrafted free agent after the 2021 draft. The Packers signed him after he spent some time with the Atlanta Falcons. Again, 
no expectations for Kobe Jones. Like Hamilton, there's really nothing you can expect from him other than making the team at the very best. I don't think he's going to make the team. The last guy I have in the no expectation category is Chauncey Manick. He is a undrafted free agent this year, a pretty low-end athlete, relatively productive in college. Again, just with the depth chart ahead of him, the expectation at best would be making the roster. I don't think he will make the 53, but I do think he ends up on the practice squad. In my initial 53-man roster prediction, I said he would just because... I don't know, you need a new name in there sooner or later. Of the Packers' undrafted free agents, I think he might be one of the guys with a real shot just because of the the depth chart situation. I just think there are going to be other guys um, that end up ahead of him. Moving towards our low expectations group, uh, I've got Tipa Naliai here to lead off. Former undrafted free agent out of Utah State, gets another go-round with the Packers this year. Low expectations for Naliai. The athleticism is there. The size just isn't. That was the knock coming out of uh, Utah State. He needed to fill out, and he just really hasn't added any weight. And you can't be an edge rusher in the NFL playing in that high 220s, low 230s range. You're just going to get pushed around too much. The big question for him would be, can he prove he's more than a special teamer? I don't think so. But if he wants to meet even the low expectations that we have for him, he's got to look like an improved player. And I guess even prior to that, he's got to make the roster again. My prediction is that he's not going to make the 53 or the practice squad. I think the Packers have seen enough from him, and they'll try to move on. A guy like Manick is going to be the the player who takes what would have been Naliai's spot on the practice squad. Another interesting guy in this category, though, is Randy Ramsey. Uh, He tore up his knee early in August of last year and, as a result, missed the entire 2021 season. But he did play pretty extensively in 2020 primarily as a special teams guy, but the Packers like his versatility. That said, I still have to have pretty low expectations for him coming into 2022, which stings a little bit because, in theory, I like him as a player. He plays a little bit of both inside and outside linebacker. The ACL may be too much for him to overcome, returning from that injury, trying to get back into the rotation. I think the bar for him has to be make the roster. But given that he's done some good things for the Packers before, good, you know, relative term there, in a, in a small role, he's done some good things. Um, but I think making the roster and then see where you go from there is a pretty good path for Randy Ramsey in 2022. And I think he is going to make the roster. If the Packers don't sign another edge, I think he ends up being their, their probably last edge rusher on the roster. But given his special teams acumen, And given that they've got some turnover happening on special teams in addition to their edge rusher group, I think he's got a real good shot. If he's back from the ACL and and can play at a relatively high level, relative to where he was before, I think he's got a good shot at making the roster as a special teams contributor. Moving towards our moderate expectations range, we start with Kingsley and Igbare. I don't know if we're supposed to call him Kingsley or JJ. He said he prefers JJ. The Packers list him as Kingsley. Take your pick, I guess. 2022 fifth round pick. I think he's got a real shot at being the Packers third edge rusher this year, almost by default. The Packers just didn't do anything else on the edge. He's it really as far as new guys. I mean, you've got undrafted free agents, sure. But in terms of any substantive investment in the position group, this is it. And expectations go up accordingly. I think most of the time you would 
you'd look at a guy like him and, and have pretty, I guess, pretty low expectations, honestly. But there's a role available for him there. And he can meet the expectations that I have for him, that I think the team probably has for him, by just making it look like it wasn't a mistake to only spend one fifth-round pick on an edge rusher this year. I think he can do it. I like his size. I like his productivity in college. And I think he's going to make the 53-man roster and start a game this year. And over the course of the 2021 season, he's going to have three or more sacks. Two predictions for Enigbare. Same category, Jonathan Garvin. If you're looking at the balance of his career to date, I think you could make the case that he is already in the house money territory as a seventh-round pick in 2020. What are reasonable expectations long-term for a seventh-round pick? Sure, he was a draft pick for a reason, but he fell all the way to the seventh round for a reason, too. He was a great tester, just didn't do a whole lot with it in college. My expectations for him are pretty moderate this year. On the one hand, he is limited as a player. But on the other, he had a pressure rate of more than 10% last year, playing a small rotational role. He did get to the quarterback when he was on the field. For me, if if I'm looking at Jonathan Garvin, I want him to solidify his claim on the edge three or edge four role and at least match his production from last year. I think he is going to make the 53-man roster. There's prediction one of two for Jonathan Garvin. It's It makes too much sense to keep him. You just wouldn't let that guy go, given that he can contribute on special teams, given that he did show a little bit of ability um, as a pass rusher last year, I think you keep him. But I don't think he's going to hit 10% in pressure rate again. I think that was just a little bit fluky for him last year. I would love to be wrong about that. I just don't think he's going to get to a 10% pressure rate again. Now, moving to high expectations, there are two guys in this category, and you certainly know who they are. The first is Preston Smith. In 2021, he recorded one of the great bounce-back seasons in recent Packers history. 2020 was bad. It was fantastic in 2019, but 2020 was bad. He was out of shape and borderline irredeemable, I think, after 2020. But he takes a monster pay cut, albeit with some incentives to earn a bunch of money back, and completely, almost completely, comes all the way back. And now he gets a new contract and a chance to keep making very good money with a team that took a chance on him and with a team whose faith he rewarded. My expectations for Preston Smith are very high this year. Contracts are for future performance. You'd like to think that there is some aspect of rewarding a guy for having done a good job in the past, but the Packers believe that 2021 wasn't a fluke. They believe that Preston Smith is 2019 and 2021 and not 2020 and they're paying him to continue to be those seasons and not his down year. And look, being in shape and and all of those sorts of things is the job for a professional athlete. But think about what we went through in 2020, just kind of as a a big group of people. I want to say as a society, but like as a country, let's just put it that way. 2020 was rough for a lot of people. And if it ended up being rough in ways that affected how – Preston Smith, you know, was able to take care of himself, get on the field and and do some things. You know, I, I do cut him some slack for that. 
it was completely unprecedented. Nobody had dealt with anything like that before. So I think you can give him some grace for that. Obviously, there there is accountability that goes with that. Like, hey, you weren't cutting it. You need to to step up. And he faced those consequences, but he, he owned up to it. And he earned everything back. But, you know, in, in retrospect, you know, I feel like we do have to cut him a little bit of slack for 2020. He can meet expectations this year by matching his 2021 production. Be at least as good as you were in 2021. I don't think that's a big ask. We know he can do it. He did it in 19. He did it in 2021. Be about that player again. I predict that he's going to have at least 15 quarterback hits this year, as charted on profootballreference.com. I also predict that he's going to have more than 8, but fewer than 11 sacks this year. Part of that is because I think Rashawn Gary is going to take some of those sacks away. If you look at Rashawn Gary's story as a whole, he is a great draft and develop success story. I think a lot of times we think of draft and develop wins as being like mid to low round picks because there's a lot more development. But Gary is a lot more now than he was when the Packers drafted him. He is a much more complete player. I think he might even be a better better athletically now than when he was drafted. Just the way that he uses his athletic ability, maybe he wouldn't test better or even as well, but he seems to understand how to harness his athletic gifts better than he did when he was a rookie. And now it's time to start being the star the Packers thought he could be and potentially making himself an awful lot of money. That is a not inconsiderable part of the 2021 or 2022 calculations for Rashawn Gary, I think. Because if he has a monster year this year, he's not going to want to play on that fifth-year option. No, sir. You wouldn't. It's time to get paid now. So let's go get paid. Let's get that contract worked out. And honestly, the Packers probably wouldn't want him to play it out either. Because things could get even more expensive. And he might... You might end up having to franchise tag him, and who knows how much that is going to be. But the expectations, as you might guess, are very high for Rashawn Gary. How could they not be? He was very, very good last year. Building, if he does, on what he put up in 2021, he should be like borderline all-pro territory. He should be. Will he be? I think so. But to meet those expectations, he's got to be one of the Packers' two or three best defensive players. In some order, it should be him, Jair Alexander, and Kenny Clark. Those should be your three big studs on defense. If you want to throw Devondre Campbell in there, sure, I would put him behind those three guys, just given the importance of the other three in the the scheme the Packers run. But Campbell's right up there, too. I think Gary needs to be in that conversation for being one of the best two or three players on the Packers' defense. He may already be. And if that's the case, if that's how you're evaluating evaluating him, he should be pushing to be the very best perceived guy on the Packers' defense. And I think he can do it. I'm very high on Rashawn Gary coming into this year. I think he's just going to get more opportunities. He's going to get more attention from opposing teams, sure. But I think he's going to be able to overcome that and be very, very productive this year. This is the year I think the production fully matches the traits for Rashawn Gary. 
I'm predicting 12 or more sacks this year from Gary and 20 or more quarterback hits. We might even be low on quarterback hits. In fact, let's bump that up right now. 25 or more quarterback hits for Rashawn Gary. 12 sacks, 25 quarterback hits is a pretty darn good year. And I think Rashawn Gary can do it. And I think he will do it. We're going to talk about the games that changed the game, chapter, the third chapter here in just a second. But first, I need to shout out Patreon supporters Jacob, Allison Tolley, and Alan Habel. Sorry, as always, if I mispronounce anybody's name here, but I'm grateful for your support. And I'm grateful for everybody who chooses to support the Power Sweep and Blue 58 on Patreon because, well, I don't want to be an ad salesman. And as I say often on this podcast, we just don't run ads. I'm philosophically opposed to them. I know we drop, you know, Patreon mentions in there frequently, but um, just the kind of ads that you run on podcasts, sports podcasts in particular, you've got male grooming products, daily fantasy sports, and uh, gambling. That's pretty much your your selection. I don't want to advertise any of those things. So I'd rather open up the opportunity for people to support the show if they want and get a little bit of something in return when they do. My part of that return is giving you a little bit of bonus content on our Patreon page and uh, inviting you into our Discord server where you can chat with Packers fans from all over the world. So consider supporting so we don't have to run ads, which we won't, and uh, get a little bit of stuff in return. I think that's a much better deal than hearing ads for stuff that you don't care about anyway. Sound good? Good. The Games That Changed the Game, Chapter 3. We are talking about Don Coryell's Roving Why. This checks a lot of boxes for me. For starters, the San Diego Chargers and their tremendous uniforms. Don Coryell and his offensive innovations. And Kellen Winslow, one of the great tight ends in NFL history. The game itself, Week 2 of the 1980 NFL season, the Oakland Raiders traveled to San Diego to take on the Chargers, and the Chargers win 30-24 to in overtime. Dan Fouts throws for nearly 400 yards on 44 attempts, 28 completions in the game for Fouts, 18 to Kellen Winslow or John Jefferson. Winslow, the big Hall of Fame tight end, goes for nine catches, 132 yards, and a touchdown. I kind of have a a real love for games like this because although they feature a lot of offensive innovation and things like that, a big part of this game was we're throwing to Kellen Winslow. And if we're not throwing to him, we're throwing to John Jefferson. You know that we know that try and stop us. And the Raiders couldn't. And that's a lot of fun in football. Stepping back a little bit. I like that Ron Jaworski Uh, in sharing a couple anecdotes at the start of this chapter, as he's done throughout, views a lot of this stuff through the lens of his own NFL career. It'd be hard to do that otherwise, I think, if you played in the NFL. So I'm glad that he just does it. Plus, he played at a really pivotal time in NFL history. The late 70s and early 80s are when the NFL really fully transformed from a game to a business. Shoot, he talks about making $27,000 in a, in a year late in the 70s, which, you know, adjusting for inflation is a pretty good chunk of change back then, but it's, it's hardly a multi-million dollar contract. When he was in the NFL, there were a lot of pivotal players and people um, really reshaping the league at the time. We've talked about a lot of them. 
And I think it's great that he talks about his relationship to them, either you know directly or indirectly, as being a part of how he perceived the game then and now. I also like from this chapter that you saw how size wins. Um, one way or another, Kellen Winslow was going to bully people. And if he couldn't bully them, he was going to outrun them. And for all the scheming, for all this, the offensive plays and defensive strategies and things like that, I like that football can boil down to just one guy being bigger and stronger than the, the guy across from him. This chapter, I thought, also showed how much connections matter. Don Coriel was connected to Sid Gilman, who we've talked about, but also to John Madden. Madden learns the big downfield passing game from Coriel, and who loves that sort of go-big-or-go-home passing attack? Well, Al Davis certainly does. We also get a mention of Ernie Zampice in this chapter. Offensive genius uh, shaped a lot of, of different things in the NFL. Joe Gibbs uh, connected to Coriel, obviously pretty successful there too. And Norv Turner, pretty successful too. Connections matter. And people taking care of their friends matters too. And there's a lot of that in this chapter too. I like that Don Coriel's success aligns with a change in the rules. We talked about that a little bit last week, how changing how the Pittsburgh Steelers could physically play defense as a result of their physically dominant uh, cover two, open things up for passing offenses. Coriel is right there to take advantage. And some of the best innovations throughout football history, throughout sports history, even I guess in a lot of areas of inventing, just come down to understanding the rules. Coriel figures out how to take advantage of new pass defense rules. Success follows. You see that on a smaller scale in the modern NFL. Here's an example related to the Packers. Uh, In the Packers' early season matchup with the 49ers last year, there's a play where Trent Williams, their monster, the 49ers' monster left tackle, ends up pulling out into space, ends up one-on-one with a Packers defensive back. I forget who it was. It may have been Darnell Savage. That's really not important. The Packers' defensive back, whoever it happened to be, does what defensive backs are coached to do, and he takes on Trent Williams low and tries to blow up the block. You knock Williams down, he can't continue to steamroll down the field, and you've got a chance for another guy to uh, swoop in and uh, take out the ball carrier. But what happens? The defensive back is flagged. You can no longer take on an offensive lineman blocking in space low. That is a personal foul. Do you think it's a coincidence things happened that way? Of course not. Kyle Shanahan knows that rule. And so he motions, he gets Trent Williams out into space, blocking one-on-one with the defensive back. What's the defensive back honestly supposed to do there? Just stand there and take the block from 300 and who knows how many pound Trent Williams one-on-one? Well, no. But there's nothing else he can do. He can't go low. There's no trade-off for the offensive lineman anymore. It's an automatic win. And the 49ers know that. So they're going to put their offensive lineman in a position to get an automatic win against a defensive back. Understanding the rules matters. Related to that, it's also kind of funny that one of Don Coryell's big innovations was, or boils down to, hey, what if the tight end stood over there instead of over here? Sometimes it really is that simple. And it was this that simple when you've got a Hall of Fame tight end talent like Kellen Winslow. Again, players not plays, that old maxim, uh, but it, it's a lot easier to look like an offensive genius when you've got 
a Hall of Famer at one of the most important positions for your offense. I loved Jaworski's description of Dan Fouts reading defenses because it pretty neatly explains how football actually works. I think just about all of us have played Madden or a similar game to some extent. Playing the video game, obviously, is nothing like playing the actual game. But I think one of the biggest ways where it differs is that in the NFL and in high-level football pretty much anywhere, quarterbacks aren't ever really looking at their receivers, which is a weird thing to think about until you sit down and think about it. Quarterbacks aren't looking for their receivers because what are they doing? They're looking at the defense. They're looking to see where the defense is. It's, it's not a football example, but my high school basketball coach explained it to me this way. He said, you're, you're, watching, you're watching our guys too much on offense. He pulled me aside and said, say you're running a play. We're, say we're running, and he, he throws out the name of one of the plays that we had. You know that play, right? You know where everybody's supposed to be. So why would you need to stop and watch your buddy running through the middle of the defense, waiting for him to come open, because you know where he's going to be? Who should you be looking at instead? You should be watching to see how the defense is reacting to what you're doing. Once you know how the defense is reacting, you know where you can go with the ball. That is how NFL quarterbacks read defenses, and that's how Ron Jaworski describes Dan Fouts here. Once he he figured out what the defense was that he was seeing in front of him, he knew where he had to go with the football, and boom, he would just throw it. And since Don Coryell had made the innovative decision to have as many pass receivers as you possibly could be eligible on a given play, there were a lot of options for a quarterback who could understand opposing defenses as well as Dan Fouts did. It's wild that 42 years ago now, you could have a guy throwing 44 passes in a game. But that's, I guess, the genius of of Don Coryell. That was the sort of innovator that he was. We've talked about that a lot now uh, in this book, Coaches realizing that it's more efficient to throw than to run. It's weird that that had to be a big revelation, but we're what, 10 years into the era in the NBA of people figuring out that three points is worth more than two. So sometimes the obvious thing isn't always all that obvious. In terms of Packers connections, there were two guys that came up in this chapter, a couple of smaller mentions, but two big ones. John Jefferson, who was a big factor in this game, uh, caught the game-winning touchdown pass that put the Chargers over the top against the Raiders here, uh, ended up playing four relatively uninspiring seasons in Green Bay. He His last season in San Diego was 1980. He played 1981 through 84 with the Packers. His best season was 83, had 870 yards receiving and seven touchdowns. Other than that, pretty pretty nondescript. Don Horn also gets name-dropped here. He played under Don Coryell at San Diego State and actually ended up being the first-round pick for the Packers in 1967. He was taken with the intention of, of making him the heir to Bart Starr, but that never really panned out, and uh, he ended up having a, a pretty nondescript NFL career. But great college player under Don Coryell. The actual game itself here is, I think, pretty well covered. You've probably seen highlights from this game or similar ones to it. Um, if you've watched any amount of NFL football, Kellen Winslow is just a beast. 
uh, just go watch highlights of him if you ever get the chance and think about it. It's, it's easy to take a guy like him for granted historically, given the players we have at the position, at the tight end position in the NFL now. But just think about a guy like him playing almost half a century ago. He must have seemed like an absolute unicorn in 1980. I mean, Star Wars had been out for three years at that point. We were less than just over 30 years removed, 35 years, uh, from the end of World War II. I mean, he was a historical anachronism. Uh, He was a man out of time, almost. There was nothing like him at the time, and for a long time after, there was nothing like him either. Sure, as the, the book points out, there, there were other guys who could have played a similar role had they been given the same opportunity in San Diego, but Winslow was there. He was the, the guy who got the opportunity, and he made the most of it. And sure, it's entertaining to watch. And that's ultimately what this whole, I guess, operation boils down to. Is it fun to watch? Even if he never won the Super Bowl, Don Coryell's offenses certainly were. That's all I've got for you on this episode. I appreciate you listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it even more if you would share it with someone else you think would enjoy it too. It's going to help us grow the tent. That's uh, the number one way that we grow is through your word of mouth. And it's going to help all of us as we grow and continue this conversation around the Green Bay Packers, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.